I'm Andrew Kwan, founder and director of Andrew Kwan Artist Management, an agency representing classical instrumentalists here in Canada and abroad. I'm here today being interviewed by the host, Mako, on Talking Blues. find out how music first came into your life. Ah, uh, I am of Chinese descent. I am a immigrant here in Canada, originally from Hong Kong. And as part of many Asian families, I studied music. I studied piano was my instrument. I was very fortunate to attend a music school here in Toronto called St. Michael's Choir School. The choir school has produced many international superstars, everywhere from uh, anyone from Stuart Goodyear to Michael Shade, Matt Dusk, Kevin Hearn of the Bare Naked Ladies. I was part of that training and I knew that music always had to be a part of my life. Uh, but being uh, uh, from a f- Chinese family, uh, my parents always felt that I had to do something a little bit more secure and they wanted me to go into business. So the passion of music, specifically that of Western European classical music, um, I managed to find a, a wonderful uh, uh, balance between business and music in the role of an artist manager. Interesting. So when did you start playing music? I know your mom taught you initially. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I started at the age of five, uh, little piano lessons from my mother. And then when I uh, attended this choir school, every student attending uh, had to take piano lessons. So I started with the piano teachers uh, that, that were available at the choir school. And when I hear choir school, it automatically conjures up an image of people singing. Are you a singer as well? Correct. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I sang in the choir for the 11 years. Uh, the school was a special school in that it ran back in aging myself from grade 3 to 13. Ontario had grade 13 back the back in those days. And, and so uh, we were responsible to provide music to the cathedral here in Toronto. It's St. Michael's Cathedral. Uh, every student uh, was part of one of four choirs that provided Sunday, uh, Sunday music for the cathedral. Do you know, when you start so early at the age of five, do you know, was there a moment where you realized that music, you were passionate about music as opposed to it being something that you you did because your parents told you to? I I think that's a perpetual struggle with all parents. Uh, There there is that level in which, uh, uh, yes, it, it was painful a lot of you know a lot of discipline uh, actions from my parents forcing me to practice you know 15 minutes to 30 minutes every day and and uh, and moving forward I think uh, especially with with music lessons a lot of parents have forgotten you know I, I do a parallel with hockey parents right. if I said to a hockey parent that you would never allow your kids to watch a hockey game or to, you know, many parents will save a lot of money and, and take them to the Maple Leafs or, or take them to the Marlies here in Toronto. Uh, and, and they actually see excellent players. 
And every child who picks up a hockey stick will have that seventh game Stanley Cup scenario in their mind. Be it Mary Lemieux, be it uh, uh, McDavid, be it uh, Wayne Gretzky back in our days. You know, they, they have that scenario play that they're on a breakaway. They shoot, they score. Sometimes with music lessons and young families or young kids who are taking it, the exercise for them is often just the weekly piano lesson, violin lesson, and parents forget to take their kids to see concerts. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the only inspiration is their music teacher, and music teachers are fantastic, and I think there's a very special place in heaven for any music teacher. Uh, But at the same time, I think it's for for me. My, I was very fortunate that my parents did take me to to the symphony concerts, to recitals, and I saw, wow, that's what a piano can sound like. It doesn't sound like that when I'm practicing. <laughs> so there was a bit of inspiration, and 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 then being in a choir where where the level of excellence was was very high, um, it, it inspired me to continue. So yes, there there were challenges and. And as a kid in high school, you know, you wanted to go out after class and, and, and do something else. But I always knew I had to get home and practice. I was fortunate to have some level of talent, and, and which required that I, I practice, you know. It got to, the, got to the point where, you know, I was doing an hour and a half daily, two hours a day. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's a balance. So. You also got your ARCT. Correct. Which is- no easy feat, I understand. Yeah, yeah. When did you get that? Uh, when I was uh, 17, 18. Uh, and then I I was always impressed with letters behind one's name. And, and so after that, I, I did, uh, in the Toronto Royal Conservatory of Music System at that time, the highest level was the Associate of the Royal Conservatory. The ARCT stood for Royal Conservatory of Toronto back in those days. Um, and after that, I uh, pursued two more diplomas through the London UK's uh, examination system, the Trinity College of London, and I did my license and fellowship through them as well. Okay, so if your parents thought or didn't tell you to go into something more than music or go into business, were you good enough to pursue piano as a profession? I don't know. Did you ever consider it? Yes, for sure. Okay. For sure. Um, I guess going to university, my my priorities and interests changed a bit. Uh, Being in a new environment, meeting new people. Uh, The choir school was a very small private school, so some of my schoolmates I started with in grade three went wire to wire into grade 13, and then then I went to uh, York University here in Toronto, and I met new friends and at that point the idea of having to practice three hours four hours a day was not as was not as uh, um, interesting at that point so I knew what it took I knew uh, in order to make it into uh, even even not not so much a, a solo performance career there you know most people think as an instrumentalist you're that single soloist standing on stage chamber music uh, or, or uh, collaborative pianist takes a lot of work mm-hmm. and, and I just at that time didn't feel the uh, the urge to pursue that lifestyle but you still played correct 
um, on weekends uh, at the choir school we had an opportunity if you reach a certain level in piano performance uh, had the ability to study uh, the the church organ the church pipe organ and uh, as one of the better piano students at a very young age I got to page turn for the organist at the cathedral and, and it was like you know standing you know second in command to the starship enterprise you know and, and seeing these 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 stops and these three manual uh, keyboard on a pipe and the, the the monstrosity the beauty of the sound you know the, the the power of the organ it really affected me and and so I, I pursued uh, pipe organ and, and I'm fortunate to this day that I still float around Toronto occasionally helping out my friends who you know it's like oh Andrew I need to take my my kids on, on a hockey tournament weekend can you cover for me so I still play the the, uh, the pipe organ okay so somebody calls you and says okay I'm not going to be available next Sunday can you cover for me is it easy for you to just go in and know what to play and how to play it uh, the, is there rehearsal involved? Sometimes if there's there's a singer, uh, so there's a quick rehearsal involved. Right. Uh, they call me because they know I'm, I'm of a certain level. Uh, I confess that, that it sounds like a, ch- a church interview. <laughs> I, I admit that, uh, um, that I have a set of repertoire that I've... I have in my back pocket, and and so the prelude, the postludes, uh, I I can pull from there. And in the Catholic service, there's standard hymns, not standard. There, there's a few hymn books, and at this point, whichever denomination, I can tackle basically any hymns that are required. So it's it's not that challenging. Do you have an organ at home? No, you no, oh, you don't. So practice means having to go to the church. Uh, yes, uh, there. So, so as a, as a student of, of organ back when I was, I started at the age of twelve. Uh, that was another uh, commitment um, because you did not have a organ at home. Right. Uh, after school, I would go to a church near my house and practice forty five minutes, and then make another trip home. Uh, so it was a, quite a commitment uh, back in those days. You were talking about page turning. Every time I watch somebody do that. I always get so nervous for them because I can, like, they make it look easy, but I I can imagine there's a lot of pressure and making sure that you do it right, turn it at the right time, don't flip the page and drop it. Right. Any nightmarish stories? Uh, uh, Ironically, my my nightmare story was as an organist and and it was one of those, uh, it was obviously before the days of of the iPad Pro and... uh, and, and ironically, I know a lot of my colleagues who, you know, it's an expensive piece of equipment to have. And right. uh, as an organist, we still, many have not flipped over because with an organ, you're also controlling the foot pedals. Right, right. So you don't actually have a spot to put your page turning pedal on the organ. So a lot of uh, by my colleagues have not flipped over to the iPad Pro yet. Uh, <laughs> it, it was a piece that I was learning i was playing uh for one of the i think it was the easter services and and i knew there were a few tricky page turns so i had some extra photocopied pages on the organ desk as they call it and and, uh, sure enough in one of the page turns they knocked over the spare pages and uh, (laughs) and so you know uh yeah it's uh but uh, i i take pride when when i have to turn pages and uh um, I guess as a pianist, you sort of 
learn how to follow, you know, when, when I'm turning pages for a pianist who's collaborating with a violinist. Uh, you, you can't get in trouble if you're trying to follow the piano line, especially if you don't know the piece of repertoire. So you follow the easier line, the violin line, and, and it's much easier. And uh, uh, and you want to give the confidence to the pianist that you're aware that a page turn is coming up. So normally in that situation, I, I get up and I have my finger on the page. And, and so the artist knows, the pianist knows that you know, I'm ready to turn. Uh, sometimes they want the page turned a little quicker so they'll nod to me otherwise most of the time they, they know that i'm on top of it so yeah well i always get nervous with the page turner when i watch them so you go to school you decide you want to follow um or study music i just study economics and business at what point do you decide i want to work in the music industry and how does that decision come about uh, after university, I actually worked for a financial firm as an entry-level analyst, and uh, and it was sort of your standard six-month probation. And and after my six months, my my manager at that time sort of took me down, took took, took me aside and said, um, you know, I, I can't fault you. You do your work. You're here on time. You you know you put in your efforts. Uh, everything's correct, but you're not happy, are you? And I said, no, I, I thought this was my, my you know, dream career path. I said, I, I really can't stand it. And, uh, and by that time, I, ironically, I, uh, as part of that job, I, I went and did my, uh, my fellowship with the Canadian Securities Institute. So, you know, I was a certified stocks and bonds. Uh, uh, you know, could I have sold, sold them? I, I don't know. But, uh, but I was, you know, in that game. I went back to my piano teacher. So this was after the choir school. I, I started studying with a, a wonderful piano teacher in Toronto. Rest in peace, Miss Boyana Toyic. And uh, uh, Boyana just passed away a couple years ago. Um, but uh, I was staying in touch with her. And at, by that time, I'd finished my fellowship in piano performance. Um, and and, and at, the, at that time, the conservatory was starting this, this new program. And uh, which has now forayed into the Glenn Gould School. Mm-hmm. I forget the name of the school back then. It was like these special programs, and, and it was sort of a post-university type uh, uh, special program. And they had a stream called the Artist Teacher Diploma. It was a two-year program, and I went to see the uh, the academic. Uh, uh, lead at that time, a, a wonderful mentor of mine who I still occasionally get in touch with, uh, Dr. Cam Trosdale. And uh, and he sort of read my resume and he said, do you want to perform? And at that point, I was pretty clear I did not want to perform. And, and he said, do you want to teach? And I have no interest in teaching piano lessons. And he said, based on your resume and your experience, would you like a job? And I said, Hey, that sounds interesting. So he managed to design a a management trainee position for me at the Royal Conservatory, and uh, and at that point it was uh, it was very fascinating. It was sort of the whole concept of arts administration was a new. You know, it, it was obviously around every orchestra had a general manager. Every orchestra has has the administrative side, as as would an opera company, ballet company, uh, museums, etc. But uh, the idea of formulating a job in the stream called arts administration was still relatively new. I remember probably four or five years advance of that, uh, 
University of Waterloo was the first to develop a, a program called uh, Bachelor of Arts Administration. So this was still very new in the industry, and uh, and I sort of uh, said, sure, let's let's give this a try, and uh, and uh, I was there for a one year management trainee program, and then the the idea of 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 going to arts management or artist management uh, presented itself, and and I took the leap, and here I am. <laughs> okay, so. How, I mean, obviously you found it more enjoyable than what you were doing in the financial side of things. Um, in that year, what was it about that role that appealed to you? Uh, I've always been interested in the operations of things. Uh, be it, you know, I, I walk into a restaurant, I, of course I love the food, but I'm also counting how many people are coming to the restaurant. I'm trying to figure out the average, you know, meal cost for everybody. I'm checking in how many, you know, wait staff they have and how many tables each wait staff would have over the course of a night. So I've always been interested in the operations of things. And, uh, and as a result of that, I, I think the idea of understanding how an arts organization worked uh, was very appealing to me. So what did you hope to get out of that one year? And, and what did you get out of that one year? Uh, it, it was a very, you know, at, at that time, my position was uh, supported through an Ontario Arts Council grant called the Arts Management Trainee Program. Um, and, uh, and they sort of put me through uh, the different divisions, different departments of the Royal Conservatory. Granted, back then, the the, the administration of the conservatory is nothing compared to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that organization has grown, you know, 20-fold. Um, but uh, to me, it was a, I enjoyed this, I guess, the stability of the job, so to speak. It was a, you know, your administrative position. It was a nine-to-five um, I enjoyed learning as to how an organization, even like the Royal Conservatory, uh, had to had had a revenue side that had to support the expense side. You know, so all of that was very fascinating. But were you hoping to represent classical musicians, or were you thinking maybe an orchestra or art school? Or I wasn't sure. I, I was young enough that uh, you know you hear the the. Uh, TikTok philosophers today, you know, in your twenties, you know, go out and make all your mistakes and just, you know, try to try things. And I guess at that point, I, I was fortunate that, uh, you know, if it didn't work out, I could still maybe get a job at uh, with an orchestra or with a museum. You know, obviously my my love was uh, classical music, so I would be hoping that I'd find a job within uh, classical music organizations. I wasn't sure what I was. Uh, you know, and, and the conservatory um, would have offered me a position somewhere within the organization. So I, I wasn't really sure. Um, I, I wonder what when, when the person asked you if you wanted to be a musician, and you said, oh, no, I don't want to be a performing musician. And by that time, had you had enough exposure to performing that, like, what was it made you say that that's not what you wanted to do? Uh in the course of my training, I, I had done a, a few recitals, uh, solo recitals, and, and I knew how much work it was to, to carry that amount of repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I knew that, 
you know, at that time I, I enjoyed reading a lot as well. And, and you read the the uh, biographies, autobiographies of some of the the legends of the piano, and and just to realize how much repertoire that they had under their belt at any given time. And and I still think about the wonderful artists that I work with uh, on a daily basis, and and uh, and and you know they have you know, 20 concertos in their fingertips and, and, and they have, you know, how many number of, of recital programs available. And, uh, and I knew I wasn't there. I knew for me to get there was, it was a huge commitment. And, uh, and I, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I just, that wasn't what I would find fulfilling at that point. So do you start your, your company right away or do you go through somebody else first before you start i was with a, a partner at that time and we started together and then the partner decided to uh to leave and uh and that was it so, so tell me about the idea when you first started what you hope to achieve what was the goal uh the goal still remains the same um and and it's the it's the promotion and development of uh, classical instrumentalists. Uh, we at one time did have uh, a roster of singers as well, um, though I, I would imagine that my knowledge of, of operatic roles is decent, but understanding it to the point of being a good manager, I think required a higher level of knowledge. So my strength was instrumental repertoire, and, and, and that's the roster that I primarily work with. Um, instrumental ensembles and soloists uh, and at that point and, and like I said to current day it, it is the development the marketing the the career advice of artists and in doing so hopefully engage them in public performance um, and and understanding the their trajectory of a career and and that it is a you know I, I think of some of the the greats pianists or great classical artists who, who have recently passed. Leon Fleischer, you know, he passed at the age of 92, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he started performing at the age of 19. You know, that's a, you know, this is not your uh, uh, flash-in-the-pan career of, of 10 years and where are they today. So understanding that uh, that is a life journey, it, that, that part has always appealed to me. We had the pleasure of working with Leon Fleischer. What an incredible man. Incredible knowledge. Mm. Right. So when you decided to go out on your own and start your company, how easy was it to establish that business? Or approach an artist and say, hey, I'd like to represent you. And I don't know what the lay of the land was, and, and there was a lot of competition back then, but how easy was it to get off the ground your, your business? Uh there, there, there's obviously uh, instability in any new businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is a sh- shortfall of classical musician agencies here in Canada. Uh, from when I started to today, uh, it's actually quite frightening. When I, I remember finding an old directory and just doing a quick count. Back when I had started, there were 16 instrumental classical rosters in Canada. 
And today there's really just four of us. Um, I wish I could say that's, you know, my world dominance uh, took over and, and knocked them out of business. But uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a very challenging business. And, um, and over time, many of them retired, many of them just didn't want to uh, pursue it. And, and, and in the structure of our business, it's, it's also difficult because of the, uh, the cycle of bookings. Uh, right now, here we are in January 2024, and we're confirming dates for 24-25. We're co- starting conversations for the concert season 2025-26. So as a new business that's based on a commission revenue, you're not going to see payments until sometimes 8 months, 16 months, 24 months. Wow. Um, and so can... A new industry can a new company sustain itself, which again it's it's no different than from any other industry. You know, people why he, he, there's been question about this statistic, but they say that eighty percent of new restaurants go bankrupt in the first year, mm-hmm. and part of that calculation is that people figure, okay, renovation, uh, startup, opening day, it's going to cost me a million dollars. They don't realize that you need another half million to carry it for that first year and if you're not making that money you go bankrupt so with our business uh, again i was fortunate that uh, my personal life at that time was not too expensive i could afford to sort of maintain a minimal revenue uh, personal revenue to start the company and uh, and so i was able to weather out that first first uh, 16 18 months do you remember a moment where you thought the company had gotten to a place where you wanted it to be? I know it's an ongoing thing, but as somebody who started up with nothing and starting a, a company from scratch, was there a moment where you signed somebody or you did something that was a, a milestone to you? Uh, I was very fortunate, and, and uh, people that you've worked with, uh, um, I, I was very fortunate the early days of my company that I had some outstanding artists uh, my early days, I worked with St. Lawrence String Quartet. Um, and, and ironically, the as I mentioned, I, I did have a vocal roster. Uh, back in those days, Toronto was filled with uh, uh, musicals. And I had five uh, singers in musicals. And, uh, and with those contracts, we did get us... We, we received commission from those. So that sort of helped keep a, a revenue for the company in the early days. It wasn't a big amount, but it was enough to keep the office and the lights turned on, so to speak. Um, and, uh, but but I had a, some, you know, the St. Lawrence String Quartet, after I started working with them for the first year, they won the Banff uh, String Quartet competition. And uh, in that time, I had some other artists. There was an outstanding Czech Canadian pianist by the name of Anton Kubalik, who, uh, uh, rest in peace, he, he passed away five, six years ago. Um, beautiful pianist. We had uh, uh, a, a piano duo team. So so I was very fortunate to, to have represented myself well, and the artists who I worked with trusted me. Uh, and the company sort of grew in a comfortable size that, that I can handle. Uh, of course, you know, my saying is I could have a roster of 30 artists or 50 artists. 
I would rather have five artists doing 50 concerts than 50 artists doing five concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was very comfortable keeping a, a good balance of, of the size of my company that I, that I could feel comfortable working with. How would the Canadian classical music scene be viewed outside of Canada? I mean, you mentioned St. Lawrence String Quartet, who are world-renowned. You work with the Griffin, who are world-class. Um, but in general, how respected or how was the Canadian classical musical scene viewed by people in Europe or people outside of North America? I think in recent years, it's it, we've, we've sort of skyrocketed a bit with uh, the recent uh, international piano competition wins. Um, and then we've always been here. Part of the challenge with Canada is, as we all know, the, the, the geography of Canada. It's such a, it's so big and, and there's, it's not a very big population. Mm-hmm. So the opportunities are a little bit less. Um, as a result of that, unless you are very uh, willing to understand the Canadian, the Canadian cultural landscape, um, people sort of skip over Canada. You know, they see Canada as the six major cities and, and, and that's it. Um, fast forward to today where the competitiveness for classical music opportunity has has increased drastically. Um, I think the world is noticing a little bit more about the Canadians and what is available here in Canada. Uh, so I, I don't think, I you know, I, I guess it's sort of true not just uh, for classical music, but for sports and for, for academics, you know, uh, there's more opportunities when there's a, it's a country of 330 million. Uh, so the brain drain issue, of course, you know, even if we look at the number of universities that can can offer a position, there's just way more colleges and university in the U.S. So it's it's challenging, but I don't think anyone uh, thinks of Canada as as a barren wasteland of culture. Uh, it's just not big enough for them to invest the time into really paying attention. So when we last talked, you talked about. You're both an agent and a manager. Yes. Can you talk about agent? I understand you would be going out looking for performance opportunities or fielding uh, calls for performance opportunities for your roster. Tell me what the role, what your role is as a manager for these artists. Ah. In in strangely in in the world of classical music, uh, most agents wear both hats as agent manager in indie bands and in global music and pop music uh there's often two people sometimes even two separate companies that uh, that one does management the other does uh booking agent the role of a manager in classical music i need to be aware of repertoire i need to see how that repertoire fits into uh, a potential engagement uh, it's my role to advise the artist that, you know, oh, you're going to play in, in in Sarnia, Ontario. I don't think you can do that repertoire. So I, I have to have a basic understanding of that repertoire. I have to have an understanding of what the artists do have available in their fingertips. 
Um, you know, there's classical music has such a vast library of, of music that uh, uh, it's not often the artist will carry all of that all the time. Mm-hmm. So I have to be sensitive to that aspect. I have to be, I have to figure out within that role how to take that opportunity and flourish it as well. So the role of manager often doesn't come with direct revenue, but it's 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 equally important uh, for the trajectory of the artist's career. And how open are artists when you say, you know, I don't think you should be playing that. You should maybe think about this. It, it's 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 a balancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I jokingly say to friends that I have a young family, eight and four, and it's like I've had. You know, three decades of of, of babysitting experience. <laughs> it's it's you know. I, at the same time, I don't want the artist to be playing, you know, uh, uh, ABBA cover tunes mm-hmm. um, arranged for string quartet or arranged for violin piano. They have to feel that what they're doing is artistically and uh, has integrity and and the. Their, their programs push their artistic development as well. Uh, but at the same time, they have to be sensitive. And, and I guess that's the role of a manager is to understand the concert organization, the community where that concert organi- organization is taking place, understand what type of series that concert organization is. Definitely historically, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the Western European classical music art form was the backbone of concert activities across Canada. Um, be it Port Hope, be it in Snow Lake, Manitoba, in Terrace, British Columbia. Um, if there was a concert series, the lion's share of presentation was that of classical music. Fast forward to today, where we live in a very diverse ethnic country, uh, interests have changed. Those concert series are still there, um, but their priorities have have changed a bit. You know, of course, the uh, social political uh, priorities uh, this country is 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 not facing, but but uh, celebrating uh, things like that have have changed the concert presenting landscape drastically. And understanding that uh, uh, people are not attending a straight-up classical music recital. Uh, So those concert series that used to present five of their seven concerts. uh, Yes, we live in Toronto here, and and we look at examples of of Kerner Hall and and Music Toronto and uh, TO Live, and, and we see the vast numbers of classical music presentations and the number of presentations overall I, I think that Kerner presents 80 shows a year you know that is not the norm across this country uh, I've worked in communities like Estevan Saskatchewan or 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 LaRange Saskatchewan and, and these are the grassroots volunteer organizations that go door to door putting up posters and and asking the uh, the the bank for a fifty dollar donation and things like that, and 
their concert series have changed. And sometimes they do no classical music in a season. And they present a country and western. They present a family show. They present a jazz concert. And they present a, a folk group. Well, for a classical musician to walk in there and do two hours of, of, of contemporary music is quite challenging mm-hmm. uh, for that audience. And, uh, and in this day and age, we have to be very sensitive to uh, the, the ticket-buying audiences. And, and that's an area which, as a manager I've, I've, and as a lecturer, I, I've been doing a bit of research on, and I love using the example of this little group called the, the Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones can sell out 60,000 seats in 48 hours. If you look at historically their set list, they will always start off with Jumping Jack Flash, I Get No Satisfaction, um, you know, some of their all-time hits mm-hmm. right off the top to get the audiences, the crowds, wild and excited. And then they'll do some new pieces from the new album. And before, if they have an intermission, they'll always do another one that brings people back. This is a group that has equal longevity to that of, of Leon Fleischer, Menachem Press. They're some of the superstars of classical mm-hmm. music. Yet they know how to program their shows to bring you know their audiences into an apex and, and et cetera, et cetera. So all that to say, um, as a manager, I, I try to explain that to the artists, that, hey, you're walking to a concert series that's, uh, that has had no classical music for the past year. You cannot play that piece. You know what else do you have in your repertoire? I don't want them to do Pachelbel Canon and Vivaldi Four Seasons all the time. But there's some, they're, they're, you know, there's there's so much repertoire out there, and most of my artists respect that. As a manager and as their agent, my best interest is for their success. So I'm not doing this to you know to to soapbox and and, and prove them you know that that I'm. The, the agents better you know it's it's so that they're liked and the success of our business is not that of first engagements it's that of repeat engagements meaning as an agent side i can wax poetic and sell an artist but if you do things that they don't like out there you'll never be asked back right so that's and i'm fortunate that um i look on my roster and the number of artists which continue to return back to concert series and festivals because they are like because they play pieces that people want to hear I wonder the Canadian classical music landscape or more like the opportunities has that changed greatly over the time that you've been in business which is over 30 years indeed uh, are there more opportunities or less I think, you know, the, the backbone of touring was the dedication and, and diligence of these amazing volunteers and communities across Canada. Uh, people who, you know, I, I think about the, the name Women's Musical Club of Toronto, who last year or the year before celebrated their 100th year. Uh, and they are not the longest running one. Actually, the one in uh, Brantford, the Women's Musical Club there. Uh, started three years before the Toronto one did. 
uh, and and if we think about society back then, you know, it, it's it, it's not a, a bias or, or a statement, but at that time, the 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 father went to work, the mother was at home, and hence the title "Woman's Musical Club" because a lot of these organizations started by the the the, the women who were not working. Uh, and they were the ones who baked the cookies and, and, and the muffins for intermission and, and the post-concerts. All that has changed, you know, and, and, and I know that volunteerism overall in Canada has changed. Not just Canada, around the world, globally. Um, so these organizations are finding it harder and harder to survive. Uh, and, and as a result of that, the the their their priorities of what is attractive for tickets uh, ticket sales have changed selling classical music has never been easy you know it, it is not uh, something for the masses it never was and never will be we hope it w- obviously as someone who cares and, and loves the the music it would be great if it was as popular as taylor swift but it's not uh, so it takes a very uh, specialized energy to make it happen. Yes, in the past 30, 40 years, the number of opportunities have decreased drastically. Where it has flourished is the artists' initiatives to develop festivals. Um, those have become much more uh, specialized and, and, and stronger. Um, and, and so on one side, the numbers have decreased, but where they do get to play uh, have become uh, much more successful. So I, I guess that's a bit of the, the trade-off. Right. In, in your roster, I know a lot of the musicians, I don't know, I shouldn't say a lot, but some of the musicians teach. And so it's not like they're gigging full-time. Um, or they will do other things within the classical music world to compensate their work. Is it possible for Canadian classical musicians to just work in Canada and make a decent living? Or do they have to go outside? Do they have to go into the States? Do they have to go to Europe or Asia? I, I, I think, uh, yes, I, and, and that holds true with all aspects of, of business and, and, and be it in performance, be it... Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, even grocery stores, you know, and grocery stores at one time sold bread and butter, and now they're mm-hmm. involved in, you know, they, they, they lobby to get the liquor license to sell wines and beers. But, but prior to that, they're, they're selling clothes, they're selling banking services, they're, they're selling televisions. And, uh, you know, for uh, we know that, you know, they are supporters of the arts and the Weston Foundation. Loblaws then... You know, made a big play and bought out Chopper's Drug Mart. So everyone is multi-revenue streaming. The ability to be a one-trick pony, as I call it, um, I think it's very hard. I, I think perhaps there are some international superstars uh, who don't take on an academic career. But here in Canada, simply because the opportunities are not there and the cost to fulfill those opportunities are quite high. Uh, if you were to just do the major cities of, of Canada, you know, you're only doing 10 concerts a year. Right. And in the cycle of, of re-engagement, 
you're probably not often asked back the immediate season after. So it's a two, three year cycle. And if that's the case, then what are you doing for two, three years in between? Um, and, and simply the cost is uh, definitely post pandemic. We've all seen rising costs in, in travel and car rental and in, uh, in hotels, you know, so it becomes very strenuous to, to be a performing artist. Uh, so as a result of that, they, most Canadian artists have secondary uh, revenue, you know, activities. Teaching academics is definitely one of them. Uh, arts administration, a number of artists now run festivals as artistic directors, uh, executive directors. Um, so some of them have gone into the tech and sound side of, of the industry. Uh, I, I think it's just... Uh, needed in in, a, in in the evolution of artists. It, it's ironic that you know that the joke as an actor is how many actors worked at that restaurant. It holds true in, in many industries. Um, I noticed on your roster, and I've interviewed a few of these people. Uh, you have a very you have a number of very young artists. How yes. do you go about selecting an artist? Is it something that they come to you? And then it pique your interest, or is it something you're always looking out for, and you're looking for a certain thing? Ah, I'm very fortunate that uh, over the course of my my career as an agent manager, um, I obviously have developed a lot of close friends and and acquaintances over the years. If uh, an emerging artist based in Alberta performs with the concert presenter in Calgary or in Edmonton, and they realize that they are dealing with the artist directly, not through an agent, and then they sort of ask the artist at the concert, oh, have you thought of an agent? Or, you know, and then a day later, two days later, I'll get a phone call or an email, hey, Andrew, I just presented so-and-so. So I have those type of connections that, uh, that, uh, that I hear of emerging young artists. Um, on my roster, I... Uh, I have two uh, faculty of music deans. Um, I have numerous in, instrument chairs. Um, before, uh, my wife used to run uh, the highest level of, um, I don't want to call it amateur, but because some of those, uh, a, a national music competition called the Canadian Music Competition. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a, I keep my networks and ears out there. A lot of my clients over the years have sat on juries at Montreal competition and, and the different competitions. So I hear of emerging young artists. From there, I will always try to make it a point to go hear them and see them live. It's challenging. Um, you know, I, I think one of the best examples would be uh, a professional hockey team or a football team, you may have the athletic statistics, but you may not be the marquee player. And so even in classical music, there is a level of artistic excellence that is my baseline. I obviously want someone who is amazing, but then I have to see their their stage presence, their charisma, their capability to talk at a reception. Uh, I'd like to meet with them and see where their mind space is. Are they going to be one that says, 
I don't care that I'm playing in Estevan, Saskatchewan, or in Flin Flon. I want to play this program. You know, I want to see that they understand the marketplace uh, and before I sign them. And, uh, and I've been very fortunate. That's most of my artists. As I said, I, re I respect their artistic capability. They respect that I know the marketplace as well. So yes, emerging young artists is something that I always keep an eye on. Uh, I also am fortunate that I teach at the two institutions here in Toronto, the Glenn Gould School and the University of Toronto. So I'm aware of the competition winners. I, you know, I, I, you know, it's it's somewhere filed in the back of my head, and and I see where they're going with their career before, if I want to make a play for them, or most often they come knocking on my door. So competitions, a big part of classical music. Is it, is it really important? Like, is it, can a classical musician succeed without entering competitions to establish their name? Yes, yes. Um, in a very competitive marketplace today, uh, you know, who won the five major piano competitions? Not recently, but two competitions ago. You know, unfortunately, we tend to forget there. There's obviously the hype, and and as winners of any major competition, you have the immediate winners, uh, accolade performances. The most important part is how do you parlay that into right. a career? So yes, winning a competition definitely helps, but it's not the only answer to develop. And and there's been many competition winners who's careers have not taken off afterwards as well so it's uh, it's it's a very intricate and, and, and sensitive jigsaw puzzle that you you're balancing to put the whole overall picture together okay so a number of years ago I attended a, a classical music festival and it was my first one and I was kind of taken aback by the number of older aged audience members um, and I thought, and I spoke to somebody at the festival and said, "Is this a concern that these the audience base seems to be quite a lot older than other genres of music?" And they said, "This has been something they've been talking about forever, but for some reason, people reach a certain age and go to classical music so that they seem to maintain this old audience, even though some people might not get into classical music until later on in their lives." They are often they come to it at that point. Is that still the case? Yes. But the challenge is that I, I think in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where you know there were older people in the 40s, 50s, 60s mm -hmm. as well, the exposure to classical music was already inherent through their life. So when they hit the age of 55 and assume that they, they were their personal lives was capable of, of going out at night, you know, for you don't see a lot of young families because, you know, as a parent, you know, on a Wednesday night, you're worried about what lunch they're going to have tomorrow. You got to make sure their homework's done. The idea of going to the symphony that night is, is much more challenging. Uh, the, the difficulty I feel and, and I see is that classical music was not as, ex the exposure to classical music was not as inherent as it was back in the 40s, mm. 50s, 60s. 
here in Canada, we used to have a, a, a national radio network that's whose priority was classical music, and to the point where some of the orchestras and in the uh, in the cities was started by the CBC. You know, it was the CBC Radio Orchestra, and then when CBC pulled out, that orchestra managed to survive and become sort of the the civic orchestra of that town. Um, you know, the last CBC orchestra, which was out in Vancouver, I think packed up 12 years ago. Um, so I, I am concerned that the exposure to classical music, so that when people hit that older age, may feel interested to attend. I think that's going to become a bit of an obstacle. Here in Canada, I, I love using this example to, to my students. How many students, how, how many people, when they turn 55 or 60, will wake up and turn to their partner and say, I really need to go watch a cricket game. I really need to go watch rugby. Simply put, these are two sports which, in different parts of the world, uh, can fill an 80,000-seat stadium. You know, cities go to war because of the cricket tournament or the rugby tournament. Yet here in Canada, those are two sports that aren't often taught or exposed as part of the phys ed programs. And therefore, when you turn 55, are you going to say, oh, I'll spend $75 to buy a ticket to a cricket game? We're not getting that exposure in, in schools. Uh... And there was a time when, you know, churches, regardless of denomination, had great music. And I read a very sad statistic that 25% of churches across Canada will probably be closed in the next decade. Uh, people are not attending church. So where are they listening to music? And I, I've uh, listened to podcasts and read articles of, of how, you know, the, the Alexas and the Spotify's and, 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 and Apple Music has actually limited people's exposure to new music mm-hmm. because you're comfortable with saying, play me the best of my favorite 70s band, 80s band, 90s band, and, and you don't realize that there's a new band out there. So that's not even in classical music. That's, you know, the, the, the change of demographics and, and social uh, uh, activities and, and habits. So I, I think it, it is a bit of a concern. It's also a bit of a concern in the economics of classical music, uh, for that matter, any art form. For people to become sponsors and donors, there has to be a relationship. And if you're a one-off user of that organization, there isn't that level of commitment to the organization. And so that part concerns me a bit as to the financial structure of classical music because we are not a populist type where we can play in a hall of 25,000 and make the, the, the business side of it work. Classical music continues to be uh, a priority of, of government funding, ticket sales, and, and sponsored ownership. And how do we maintain that? How do we continue to find new money to support the arts. I always find it interesting, though, that as in your roster, there's a lot of great young musicians coming up. 
and working with the RCM, we, you know, we get to see a lot more coming up. So there's obviously, you know, it's not to say all young people don't care about classical music. There's obviously some who do and who, who execute it quite well. Um, what encourages you about classical music these days? I think um, the, the, the model has changed. I think uh, the the model, you know, the the current model is. I don't want to say it's broken, but it has evolved. Um, I, I think the opportunities are much greater than than maintaining the, you know, the infrastructure that I worked in for the past thirty years. That you know, I'm just looking for uh, an organization to buy my artists today, because audiences are. Uh, much willing to explore and 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 experience different ways. Um, I don't think we necessarily need the concert stage. The you know, there you know, walk on to to a platform that's four and a half feet above the rake seating. You know, people can experience music and arts in in much different environments, and. For the entrepreneurial emerging artists, that all that allows them so many new opportunities. Whereas, forty years ago, what do you mean you're playing in a warehouse? That's disgusting, you know. But today, it's like, wow, that's very cool. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's challenging in that uh, here we are in in 2024, and the majority of classical music concerts still start at eight o'clock at night. Is classical music easier at eight o'clock than at five o'clock? Is it easier than, you know, is it more challenging at 11 in the morning or two in the afternoon? I think audiences and artists need to break that mold and, and realize, you know, why is there a senior's early bird dinner in Florida? You know, and, and that dinner is at 4.30. Right. If that is our audience base, why are we still providing classical music at eight o'clock in a city of Toronto where in February, you know, the artists don't want to leave their house. <laughs> Why can't we put it at two o'clock? Are, are the two o'clock concerts seem intrinsically less important? So I think the, the younger artists who receive their music through AirPods, through their laptops, you know, whereas you and I have a hi-fi system back in the day. We, if we had the economy, if we had the means, it would be a hi-fi room and, right. you know, it was a sanctuary of sound. Um, but all of that has changed. So for emerging young artists, uh, I think there's way more opportunities um, to develop, and especially in classical music. Uh, again, we seem to run different rules because it's classical music but as an indie band I live near the Danforth and every so often I'll have lunch on the Danforth on a Thursday afternoon and there's a Danforth music hall there and I look at these names and I don't I personally don't recognize them but there's a lineup at two in the afternoon for an evening show the younger generation of artists need to be responsible for their own fan base they need to figure out different environment to attract 
and then figure out how to connect with that fan base. And I think from that point of view, it's it's it, it, there, there's an endless opportunity. Whereas you know the the, the model that I work in uh, will face its challenges, and and it has faced its challenges. Definitely post pandemic, there there's new challenges that I didn't expect, um, and and uh, and so that's sort of my you know it gives me strength to know that when I'm lecturing to these university and, and conservatory students uh, that I tell them that you know what your grandparents were used to is not what you're walking into so be innovative explore think outside of the box and those are some of the most successful series uh, and successful performance opportunities my final question to you you do a lot of things like manage be an agent do as you said you've done some lectures what's your favorite thing you know what gives you the greatest satisfaction in what you do and what do you enjoy the most in what you get to do uh as I, as i was coming up here i was sort of thinking what type of questions and 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 did I did I ask any good ones? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're all great. Uh, and and one of the answers that I was preparing was, you know, what what makes a, you know an agent a manager? And I have some very dear friends who are agents and managers. And and I think one of the common characteristics of all of us is that we are curious. We love to connect the dots. We love to make things happen. So from that point of view, things that excite me still is is getting the engagement. Like in our office, we have this silly thing that um, when we nail down a concert, we 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 scream out, "Give me a pow!" <laughs> and and it's, it means that we got a contract. And and, and there, there's a wonderful feeling. And, and then from there, the ability to create a tour out of it. You know, we get that what we call an anchor date. So we, we fly into, say, Vancouver, and then we start designing a little run-out you know, circuit from Vancouver to Kamloops to Kelowna, over to Nelson, whatever it might be. And then, so that gives me excitement. And it still does, even after 30 years of, of getting that opportunity. And, and I guess knowing that at the end of the day, I was the conduit that gave the artists their platform, their soapbox, their stage, to do what they love, which is sharing the music that they have perfected uh, to an audience. You know that that's always is a it, it fuels me, and going to where we bumped into each other again. You know, at at a concert at at Music Toronto at, at the Jane Mallet, uh, I sat in the last row, and I love sitting in the last row because. I know the quality of the what's happening on stage. They're my artists. They're, in my humble opinion, they're the best in this country. Mm-hmm. I know they're not going to screw up, but what I want to see is the reaction of the audiences, and to know of that night's pieces, which which one work got more reaction. You know, uh, sometimes you can tell. You know, when when a piece isn't really connecting. Uh, people start to get more fidgety and you know you start hearing the concert program booklets starting to flip pages more so i'm monitoring that and and, uh so so that still fuels me and 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 anything that i can create and and produce and make happen 
uh, is is sort of my uh, my spinach to to Popeye's uh, diets. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for taking this time. I really my appreciate pleasure. this. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, all the best with your uh, podcast. Thanks.